Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by, being, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord." to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure." Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. So as one of the uh, announcements alluded to, and you've probably been hearing about if you've been in our church for the last few weeks, is we are now moving to a new season and as such, I wanted to create some vision around what does it mean to be intentional in our evangelistic efforts to the world around us. We've just ended a series on the book of Galatians, and we saw how so much of that focus was about the structure and nature of the church. If you remember the last two weeks, we saw that Paul commands the Galatian Christians to actually create a structure of, of the church 
in which they are repairing those who are in sin. Remember, brothers, if anyone be caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness or a spirit of gentleness, looking unto yourself, lest you too be tempted. And this notion that Paul commands them to give attention to the weak ones among us, among them, and then he also commands them to take up their own concerns, bear their own burdens, and also bear the burdens of one another. And so you have this amazing dynamic in the Christian faith, which we looked at as an exclusive attribute of the Christian religion. No other form of faith or religion in the world has what what I would say is the most wonderful and beautiful aspect of the Christian church in that it is simultaneously a hospital and it is also the front guard in an offensive war against the kingdom of darkness. It is simultaneously protecting her members and it is also sending her members out once, they're, once the bleeding has stopped, so to speak, to go and to carry out a war against the enemies of Christ. And one of the things that I love about this passage, even in the context of moving to a new season as a church of evangelism is this aspect that Paul sets. He commands them to take up this mindset. If you want to ever hear some of the slurs and and derogatory remarks that the atheists throw about Christianity, they say, well, that's just brainwashing. And I would say, amen. The point is, Paul commands them to change their mind in how they relate to one another and how they relate to the church as a whole, as a unit, as a functional member or a, or a piece, if you will, being played in God's redemptive history. And so Paul gives these commands to the Philippian church, and this is a church that he had already visited, and, and indeed he, he himself was the, the establishing uh, cause for that church to come about, though he didn't stay there long. And he gives them a number of commands, and he does this in the context of the fact that he himself might be dying. He is potentially, he's in prison, and he's potentially never going to get out of that prison. And so in the context of considering and evaluating whether or not he should stay in the body and be a benefit to the churches, or if he should depart and go and be with Christ, he reasons, it's better for your sake that I stay And just like I am being persecuted, also the Philippian church is being persecuted. And it is in that context that I want to look at Paul's words today. So I have entitled this message, The Ground of Christian Evangelism. And what do I mean by the ground? I mean, what is the foundational set of ideas or thoughts that root or give a foundation to or a grounding of our efforts as Christians, both individually in our own thoughts and, and how we orient ourselves to the work of evangelism and also as a church together. So with that being said, I want to look at three specific things. His command for unity, he commands them to have one mind, and then he goes on to describe exactly what that mind is. Then he gives an example of Christ's obedience and commands us to emulate that. That is the mind which he commands us to have. We're going to look at Christ's obedience and and all of its implications. And then finally, this command to shine as lights in the world. Paul, Paul demonstrates that what Christ had said about the disciples, that they are lights of the world or a city on a hill, a light which cannot be hidden. He then, Paul uses that same language to describe the nature of the Christian church and the Christian community. 
So, in the prior chapter, Paul had just given them a commandment to make sure that they do not lose heart in the face of persecution and suffering. These Philippian Christians were under intense persecution. Later on in the book, he refers to their extravagant giving, but but it has to be understood that that giving was done while they themselves were undergoing extreme religious persecution, both militarily or politically, as well as persecution from the Jews. Just like we saw in the book of Galatians, that heresy had taken root in Galatia, but it actually was being peddled around throughout the Mediterranean at that time. They were under not only political oppression, but they were also doing war against heresies. And so this is the context that Paul says to them to have a mind of Christ in that, idea, in that context. Verse 1, so then, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Isn't that amazing? We see him say, complete my joy, make my joy complete, fulfill the apostolic longings of my heart by doing the first and second commandment, loving the Lord and your neighbor. Loving the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He, he says you have to be of the same mind. You can't have divisions in the church and allow that to be tolerable. There has to be a resolution. The Philippians, therefore, are commanded to shape their thoughts and loves. Isn't that an interesting thing that, that we see Paul saying? He's saying that they cannot just be consumed with whatever their heart desires. They have to move their loves. They have to change their heart according to the commands of the gospel, which is to forsake the things of the world and the ways of the world and to look to Christ. And then, as he is going to say in just a few verses, to then use that affection for Christ to turn outward to the world in evangelism and in service. His commands give the Christian church its unique shape and character. This is what we saw in the Galatian church, and I just want to impress this upon you. I know we've already described it before, but I, I really want to emphasize this is the defining mark of the Christian church in, in regards to how it responds to the world around it. Of course, there are many marks of a church. We talk about you know the, the sacraments being presented and discipline being uh, carried out and the, the glory and presence of the Holy Spirit and some aspect of life in the church. But as it regards its interaction with the world, this is the unique aspect of the Christian church. It is simultaneously protecting its members and healing them and restoring them and feeding them, all the while reaching out to the world around it. He says in verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And then we saw again in Galatians how we, it, he commanded them to take care of their own concerns. And then a, ver, a verse later he then says, and, and take care of your neighbor's concerns. He says in verse 4, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Though each is, is to supply first for his own needs, it must not be exclusionary. What do I mean by that? I mean that a Christian man or woman, as he or she is living, uh, whether in a family or as a single person or, or a married couple, that person is responsible for their own maturity, 
for their own sustenance, for their own concerns of life, but not in such a way as if they are unable to meet them, they would fall by the wayside or be kind of ground up in the gears of the machinery of the church. Do you see what Paul's commanding? He's saying, let not each one be concerned only. Let let not each one be concerned only, but also. So there is a a removal of exclusion. The, The Philippian Christians cannot be consumed with themselves. They have to also consider their neighbor. Paul's instruction, therefore, is the fleshing out of love for neighbor, resolving needs through sacrificial giving. I think that Paul is not describing physical goods and physical needs over and against spiritual goods and spiritual needs. I actually think he doesn't describe one or the other. He's talking about both. That is to say, if I'm the only one who is at work in pursuing Christian maturity for my life, I will not be supplied everything. I need spiritual oversight, spiritual leadership. On the contrary, if I am just relying on my pastor to help me grow, and I am not also involved in the process, I will, I will have needs that are not being met. And I think the same holds true for physical things and, and whatnot. I think that is what the vision of this participation in the Spirit is, is for the Christian church. We are not a social club. We are not concerned just about the spiritual things alone, but it also is not socialism. It's an interesting thing. If you read the New Testament, you see that the common goods were only held in one church in the New Testament. In the book of Acts in chapter 2, it talks about the Christians and the saints selling their property. And it's important to understand the reason they did that is because they knew there was destruction coming on the city. The Christians were divesting themselves of a participation in the city of Jerusalem. In no other New Testament epistle are people commanded to give up all of their material goods. In fact, Paul demands that those who are stealing must steal no longer. He asserts private property is still at work in the Christian community, but on the same Uh, at the same time, he is commanding them to be concerned with the things of another. Not as busybodies, not as people who meddle, but as those who meet needs and those who respond to lack. And so I, I believe what Paul is saying is, each of you Philippian Christians, you should be a pillar of resource. You should be a pillar of resource spiritually and financially and physically And you should be a pillar of wisdom and maturity, and you should share with your neighbor in whatever way you can. That's what I think Paul is saying here. And and I think that because he then goes on to describe the sort of sacrificial giving that is required of Christians. That is to say, if you never achieve maturity, you cannot help your neighbor. You cannot disciple one another or encourage one another if you yourself are living in a wayward life or a a life that is not in step with the gospel. I think Paul is commanding them to, to become mature so that they would be able to share with one another. And then he goes on to describe how that would work. Each is supply is to supply his his own needs, and then look to his neighbor. This is, I believe, the fleshing out of love for neighbor. So Paul specifically describes what this mind should be. He says in verse 2, be of one mind or be of the same mind. And then in verse 5, he then says, have this mind. You see, the Christian church cannot 
cooperate together and create its own reason for existence. We cannot move off mission so as to make certain issues the pinnacle and purpose of our existence as the church. This has happened throughout the ages, and in fact, some churches engage in this today. Our church is really going to be only about societal transformation with, no, with nothing else. Or our church is really going to be about creating really good quality members but not do any evangelism. Or our church is going to be really about, you know, we're going to be the church that we do worship well. Evangelism's not important. Maturity's not important. It's all about style. These are, these are decisions that churches make from time to time. He's not just saying establish unity so there's never any dissension or fights. He's saying establish unity around a particular mind. He commands them to have a particular mission. He says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. One of the glorious aspects of our inheritance in Christ is that it is ours now. As Paul tells the, the Corinthian church, all is yours in Christ. And he doesn't mean that so they can start stealing things. He means all that is necessary for you to achieve maturity, for you to live in harmony with the way that God has caused the gospel to come to fruition in your life. Everything is yours in Christ. He then says, have this mind in among yourselves, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's saying that to not adopt this mind is to, to not take hold of something that was purchased for you in Christ. Verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What an interesting thing Paul begins to do. He, he begins to open up the Philippians to the understanding that the very means by which they entered into the gospel then must be emulated by them as they walk out the gospel. What do I mean by that? I mean that Paul is not commanding them to simply meditate on some aspects that are a historical fact, that Christ came and dwelt in the flesh and he suffered. He commands them to meditate upon that so as to take it as their own motivation. They take it upon themselves because it is the means by which they were brought to life in God. God, through his sovereign grace, sent his son. That son took on the form of a servant. He became a human. And then he embodied, quite literally, the grace of God through sacrificial dying for the sake of others. This is amazing because this is how the Philippians came to know God. And now that they've been transformed by that, Paul commands them to adopt that same mindset. What does this do? It absolutely demolishes this notion of Christianity that I'm just going to take a little bit of Christ for myself to make my life better or to make you know, my destiny end differently at the end of my life. The wonderful aspect of the Christian hope that we will be resurrected and live with God forever is glorious and should never be discounted. But at the same time, that sort of faith or evangelism which preaches Christianity just as a means to escape hell alone and is not also a transformative effect on your life today is actually to do a disservice to our Christian hope. Because the Christian hope, as Paul says here in these verses, 
actually begins to work backward from our destiny. That is, heaven begins to break into now by the Holy Spirit who transforms us to become like Christ. First John says, we don't know what we are, but we know we will be like him when we see him as he is, right? We, we know we are like him in this world, and when we see him, we will be transformed. And then Paul begins to write these letters to the churches and says, start emulating Christ now. Don't just wait until heaven. Essentially, what I think he's commanding them to do is to emulate Christ in the manner and in the motivation. That is, the outworkings of their faith in Christ should lead them to sacrificial giving, extreme perseverance under suffering, but they need to do it not rooted in selfish ambition or pride. They need to do it because of love for Christ. And not just their own love for Christ as the initiative effect, but as their love for Christ as the response to his love for them. That is, the gospel is the fact that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, died, was completely obedient, and raised to life, and not only raised to life, but ascended to the right hand. And it is done for the Philippian Christians. And because it is done for them, they can respond to that love they're transformed by that love, and then they are motivated to respond in the like manner and in the like motivation. It's not just the actual details of what they do. It's also how they do it. Where is their motivation? And I think that is what Paul is commanding in these chapters. Though the Son of God dwelt eternally with the Father, he did not deign to come to earth, but did so willingly. He did not consider it beneath him to leave the place at the right hand of God and step down, taking on the form of a servant. It is so interesting to me how sometimes we, we create this mindset of Christ's unwillingness to come. And we, sometimes you see these things communicated through like Jesus videos or, or what have you, or portrayals of the, the prayer at Gethsemane in, in which Christ is like trying to get out of it. I think that as we see the Lord suffer, as he begins his passion in, in that time, we see a conflict and a strife because he's truly human. He knows what he's going to encounter, but the whole motivation throughout is, as Hebrews tells us, a body you have prepared for me. I have come to do your will. It's written of me in the scroll of your book. Jesus loved to do the will of his Father, and he came willingly, and he was sent he, the King of glory, Jesus Christ, was born in a cattle pen and wrapped in dirty rags. I would encourage you, if you've never been to a farm, it, I would, some of you probably have never been to a farm. If you've never been to a farm, I would really encourage you. Uh, in, in fact, I would invite you to come with me because we want to take our daughter to Young's Dairy and see the cows and the goats. It sometimes, you know, you hear it at Christmas, but it sometimes really escapes you. Jesus Christ really was born in a place that was basically like this shed at the end of a dirty street in a small, tiny city. Like, drive to the middle of rural Ohio and find a barn with cattle in it, and that's where the Lord of glory entered into time. He was hidden in a womb. The, the word of God was silent for nine months. His, veil, his glory was veiled. He stepped down from a place of glory with the Father, and he was silent for nine months, and then he begins to cry. And he doesn't utter 
the gospel, he, he utters the cries of a baby. This is who our Christ is. This is what he did. And it, Paul is describing that. He's saying, if you think you're something and you can't bring yourself to sacrifice for the sake of Christ, then consider Christ and emulate him in his suffering and emulate him in his humility and his humbling of himself. He's commanding the Philippian Christians to dwell on these things and to emulate them. Christ lived among common people and directed his ministry to the sick and the outcasts and the poor. I was told by a fellow, uh, by a, one of my spiritual authority one time to never make an illustration in which I'm the hero, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disregard that advice. This week when I was at work, I had this amazing moment where I was coming back with my fellow coworkers from lunch, and before I knew what happened, we were passing some people who were waiting for the bus, and out of nowhere, this person asks us, hey, do any of you go to church? And I say, yeah, I, I go to church. And my coworkers were like, no, 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 and they kept, they kept walking. And before I realized it, this, this lady, she was probably in her 40s or so, she was now holding my hand and uh, beginning to tell me about the struggles that she has. And it was very clear that I could smell alcohol on her breath. And this is just in the middle of the city streets uh, downtown Cincinnati, it's, it's an amazing thing to, to experience this, that, that she was not ashamed of her alcoholism or, or alcoholic behavior, nor was she trying to hide it, but she was actively trying to get some help for it, or it, so it seemed. She began to explain how she was an alcoholic and admitted that to me and then said, but I need some money. My grandbaby is born on the other side of town and I need to get there. And unfortunately, I didn't have any cash. Nevertheless, she said, she actually opened the whole discussion with, can you pray for me? And as, as she said that, I said yes, and then the wave of alcohol hit me. And I, I will tell you the truth, it was not very comfortable. Here I am with these co-workers who I've only met a few days ago, and there's this person who I've never met who's now touching me. And after the fact, I, you know, I, I prayed for her. She, she, she didn't really um, want to keep me that long, but it was probably a minute or two. I prayed for her, told her that Christ loves her and that, that God wants to heal her. And I prayed for her and I blessed her and then I had to go. Um, but it wasn't until a few days later where the Holy Spirit said to me, if you think you were uncomfortable consider what my son did, right? I, the, the, the notion that I couldn't handle for like 20 to 30 seconds or two or three minutes, however long it was, that I was uncomfortable with that level of just human interaction with this stranger and, and obviously poor person, it dawned on me that, you know, my perspective of who Christ is and what he really did in his ministry is probably a little sub-biblical, if you read the Gospels, Jesus commonly went to the people. He went among the masses. There's this phrase in English, the unwashed masses. Isn't that such an elitist phrase, like people don't take baths? The, the notion that I would be a little bit uncomfortable with someone who wanted me to pray for them and all the same while Christ dealt with that day by day. 
if you read the Gospels, you hear these stories of the fact that Christ would come into a town and then he would be ministering all night or he would not have an ability to get away or they were beating down the door to get in to see him. This is the sort of love our Savior exhibited for us and for his people. And I think that's what Paul is commanding them to do. He's commanding them to consider what it means to take on the form of a servant. So, Christ lives among common people. He directs his ministry to the sick, the outcasts, and the poor. And it is not just ending there. If he did that alone, it would be a wonderful, perhaps the most wonderful example to emulate of Christian ministry and service. But Christ's work does not stop in Christ's ministry. It continued without any slowing down of the pace into his death, resurrection, and ascension. So it's my, it's my main point today is that we can only imitate our Lord in his incarnation, passion, and death once we have been transformed by him. If you do not know for sure that what Christ did in his coming, in his incarnation, in his taking on of flesh, and in his death and the passion that preceded it, and his resurrection. If, if you do not have the ability, by the grace of God, to see those as having been done for you, then you cannot move on to evangelizing for Christ. It is only those who have been radically transformed. Why? Because to be focused on evangelism or focused on another requires you to be delivered from self-focus. Only in seeing the depth of the sacrifice of Christ on my behalf could I ever be delivered from self-interest and self-preservation. Think about this. Self-interest is the prevailing mindset which considers or directs all of life's activities on me. And self-preservation is the mindset which avoids pain or troubling situations or chances for persecution so that my reputation's not destroyed or that I don't face any sort of physical pain or that I'm not killed. In this country, it's very unlikely that you'll be killed for Christ, though it is very possible. Nevertheless, what we have to do in, in our cultural context is not really consider the loss of life but the loss of honor or the loss of dignity in the eyes of sinful men, mind you. The point is that these two things radically control the human heart, even of Christians or people who are beginning to walk out their discipleship in Christ. I must be delivered from self-interest and self-preservation if I am to emulate what I believe Paul is calling me to do, to emulate Jesus Christ. Christ's love, therefore, does not just deliver from hell, but it, liber it liberates from the bondage of, of self-consumption. So much of Christian material and teaching is how to get God to do things so that your life is better. And do not, do not mishear what I'm saying. The Christian life ought to be lived in step with the gospel. It ought to be lived as carrying out the word of God. I do believe that God has grace for marriage and the raising of children and the establishing of business and, and how to work. I believe that all of that is taught to us by God's word. As we saw in, the, in our series in Galatians, that the law of God is instructive for the Christian. It is not to be performed for righteousness, but it is instructive in how I love my neighbor and how I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Nevertheless, if I pervert the work of Christ into how can I get through life in a better and easier way, 
then I totally miss the thrust and aim of what he did. What I believe Paul is saying is that Christ came and suffered for others, and I too am suffering for you, Philippian church. Therefore, join me and suffer, not for your sins, not for your sake, but for the sake of your neighbor who does not yet know Christ. The fruit of Christian obedience, therefore, or the fruit of Christ's obedience, is not ultimate destruction. It's important to know this because this is what the flesh and the fear of man tries to amplify. It tries to say, well, you know, if you die, your life's over. Eat and drink for tomorrow we die, right? That's the, that's the creed of the Stoics, they, or the, sorry, the Epicureans. They say, do whatever pleases you because we're all going to die tomorrow and then nothing happens. Actually, the Christian has a completely different reason to eat and drink. Eat and drink for tomorrow we die and then we get resurrected. The point of emulating Christ in his pouring out of his life is that we know that's not the end of the story. The fear of man, the flesh itself, the, the enemy, tries to convince us, you know, if you really emulate Christ here, it'll be the end of your life or the end of your social life or the end of your family life. But actually, what the gospel presents to us is that obedience done according to God with right motivation is rewarded with resurrection. That is to say that God, in raising his son from the dead, vindicated the claims of Christ to be the son of God. He vindicated him, and then as Paul reasons in the book of Acts, he's given that as a proof that God will actually judge the world through Christ. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him. Look at that word, therefore. That's not an and, it's not a but, it's not a so, even though so might work. Therefore, he says, therefore, that is in light of the fact of Christ's radical obedience and giving up of his life unto death for the will of God to be fulfilled and for the love of God to be poured out on sinners. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Can you see the great beauty of the, of the gospel? That Christ, being with the Father for all eternity, steps down into human experience, and then goes along, lives a life, completes his ministry, and then dies, and then is raised to life, and then ascends to the Father's right hand. What goes up must come down, or in this case, what went down went back up. This is what I believe the Christian gospel is. That not only do I have someone who's gone before me and encountered my death, but his resurrection is proof of my resurrection. That's what, how Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 15. And not only is his resurrection proof of my resurrection, his ascension is proof of God vindicating his saints. If you look at the book of Revelation, it's very clear that God is very interested in vindicating and preserving his people. Verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. I love that phrase because it's straight out of the Old Testament and it's, it's kind of communicating the worldview of, of the Bible, which is there are the highest heavens in which God dwells and there's a realm of men called the, the earth and under the earth. Uh, whenever I hear phrases like this, I think immediately of Lord of the Rings or Narnia. What what. The reason why is because we've lost so much of lore and myth in English. It's hard for, we're so Greekified in our, our mindset. It's hard for us to understand, but what Paul is saying is, this is all of creation is bowing before Jesus Christ. 
metaphysical realities, physical things, creatures in the flesh, those things which are visible and invisible as we confess every week in the creed. Everything is bowing before Jesus Christ at his throne. Everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I love this, that, that what the worship that comes to Jesus Christ is actually glorifying the Father as well. This is a grand view on the redemptive plan coming to fruition and to maturity, that all of creation is owing worship to Jesus Christ to glorify God. The father with great love for his son raises Christ up from the dead to his right hand and he replaces his former shame with the highest honor. If you are not, uh, if you do not understand that, in the moment in which you are tempted to not sacrifice, to not open your mouth to speak the gospel, to not share with your neighbor who is possibly questioning or, or to not love your neighbor even when it hurts sometimes, if you don't understand the ascension of Christ as the vindication of his perfect witness and perfect obedience, then you cannot in the moment be delivered from self-interest, self-preservation. Paul then commands the Philippians to obedience in the light of Christ's suffering and vindication. He says, therefore, my beloved. Very important when you're reading the writings of Paul and the other epistles, indeed all of the scriptures, uh, but especially the epistles, there are arguments that are being made and they are linked together with connecting words which help you trace the steps of Paul's thought. He's saying, obey just like you've obeyed, but obey therefore. He's saying therefore, or in relation to the witness of Christ in his death and resurrection, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then one of the most precious verses in the New Testament, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What is Paul saying by the word, work out your salvation, or the phrase rather, work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Is he commanding them to perform their own salvation? Is he commanding them to earn their own salvation? Not at all. He says that these things, as he says in chapter 1 and also the preceding verse, these things have been done for the Philippians, and they establish a starting point and an ending point and the manner to get between the two. What Paul is saying by the words work out is I believe he means flesh out. I mean, I, I believe he is trying to communicate this notion of you know where you're going, start living like you're there. Those Christians who have already died, the victorious saints, I don't think they any longer give any concern to the fear of man or any concern to the opinions of wicked sinners destined to perish. I do not believe that Paul, even at this point in his life, was living in a mindset of he really cares what's happening with Caesar. He's, he's transcended that by the grace of God, I, I believe. I believe what he's commanding them to do is to flesh it out or to take it to its logical end. It's kind of like if you're listening to a melody of a song you've heard, and you can hear where it's going, you know, in, in Beethoven's fifth, bum, 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 you did it. 
he's commanding them to follow the dots. He's commanding them to flesh out what they've been told about the nature of the gospel, that Christ has delivered them from the domain of darkness and transferred them into a kingdom of light, that the Holy Spirit has now taken up residence in them. Formerly, they were vessels for corruption, and now they've become vessels for honor and for good use. This is what I believe Paul is commanding. Just as it was the Father's will for Christ to suffer and be raised up, so also God is working in the midst of the Philippians' obedience. He is working among them, and it is his will for them, and it is his energy for them to will and to work. That is to say, it's not my will and God's energy for the work. It's God's energy for my will and God's energy for my work. Look at this very closely. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, to want the thing and to do the thing, to agree with the word of God and to carry out the word of God. They do this, the the Philippians are to do this, with fear and trembling before this amazing reality of God's action in their action. This whole year, as you're witnessing on the campuses and in the public schools and to your neighbors and to those who might stop you on the street and grab your hand before you know it's happened, what I want you to think about is, in that moment, if you're confronted with the choice, do I keep my mouth shut or do I speak boldly, is God is at work in me right now. That if I speak, it is the speaking of God. This is an amazing statement, and I think it cannot be avoided, that what Paul is saying is that when they are working out their salvation with fear and trembling, it is God acting in their acting. That when I open my mouth to speak about Christ, that it is the Holy Spirit who is providing the energy. As Christ told his disciples, he's also providing the words, but he's providing the means. He's providing the ability to do that. Paul again instructs teaching of their calling. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. What was the great promise given to Abraham? That through his offspring, that they would become like the stars of the heavens. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. As the stars form the constellations in the sky, the Philippians are supposed to be a corporate witness speaking in harmony. The reason I use this word constellations, if you've never seen a constellation, again, I would encourage you, you probably could do it on that same trip to Young's Dairy if you stay the night. There's, there's enough darkness in Yellow Springs and in Xenia to see constellations. If you're in Dayton, it's sometimes hard. But if you've, if you've never seen a constellation, I would encourage you to take some time. I'm sure you could ask John Gray where to go in Ohio to see the constellations. He knows all about camping and state parks. The point is that constellations are not one star alone. And you cannot read these verses and say, this is a commandment for me, without also saying it is a commandment for us. I cannot have this mind among yourselves unless I've got some sort of split personality thing going on. This is my mind and this is my other mind. Have this mind among yourselves. All of us together ought to have this mind. 
And then he goes on to say, you are shining as lights. That is you all. If we were in the South, I would say, you all are shining as lights. The point is that this is a corporate witness. It is not one light alone. It is a light that is distributed among her many members. Considering the approach of the end of his life, Paul then shares his heart with them. Verse 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. This is language from the old covenant where they were commanded to give off, uh, to give offerings um, and certain of those offerings were grain offerings and then you would have oil poured on it or a drink offering of wine that had been you know, grapes have to be crushed and then stored and fermented and matured. And then all of that work that's invested into wine is then poured out before the altar of the Lord. Expressing that all of this effort that I've gone through to, to either make this wine or to purchase this wine, all of it is to be spent upon God. That Paul is saying, I am about to either die or I'm going to continue for a little bit. But even if I do, even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. It's important to see this, uh, this understanding of what the Old Testament sacrifices were because the grain offering that was given or the, the, the harvest offering that was given, he's talking about the two steps to make that offering whole. He's saying that, your grain offering without this drink offering is not true fellowship. It's not true communion. I, I believe that's what he's trying to say is that I'm going to pour out my life even as you are also giving up your lives. Therefore, he says, I am glad and rejoice with you all. How can Paul speak this way, that he is glad and rejoicing though facing his death? How is it possible to with absolute truth such that this is the word of God, for Paul to have no division in his heart. He's not 99% into this and 1% out of this. He's not like 50-50 here. He's not on the fence whether he's going to, to rejoice with these Philippians, whether he's going to fulfill the command of Christ. He is completely committed and completely invested. So my question is, how can Paul speak this way, that he is glad and rejoicing in the midst of being in prison, and in the midst of the very likely possibility of him being lethally executed or, or, you know, killed. How can he speak this way? I believe it is because Paul has been transformed by Christ's love and is now joyfully, not begrudgingly, doing God's will. That is, Paul has been radically transformed by the love of Christ. And not only that, he's been given an understanding of the necessity of his sufferings that he would be able to complete the will of God. Seeing the outcome of Christ's obedience, Christians, therefore, are freed to value their lives according to what they have in Christ. This is what we have in Christ. We have a crown that is going to be unfading and never will perish. Do you know what it means to fight the fight of faith looking forward to the rewards we have in Christ? So many Christians think, well, we should just do good things and obey for obedience sake. But actually, we're commanded in the scriptures to consider our calling, to consider our election, to meditate upon what has happened to us, and also to meditate upon where we're going. I'm convinced that Paul is able to say this only because his mind has been so radically shaped by meditating upon Christ's sufferings 
and the subsequent glories to follow. That he knows Christ was humbled and then was raised up. Likewise, Paul is being humbled and he knows with confidence God will raise him up. And therefore, he is able to command the Philippian Christians to do this. Concerning Christ's transformative love, Isaac Watts spoke of this this response that it produces us in us in a, a hymn. I wanted to read these to you because I, I thought this was so wonderful. It's a song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. We've sung this song at our church, though we don't sing it today. Uh, Isaac Watts wrote this, this hymn about the love of Christ upon the cross. He says in stanzas three and four, See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such, sorrow, did e'er such love and sorrow meet? or thorns compose so rich a crown. Were the whole realm of nature mind that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. You see, what Isaac Watts is saying in this fourth stanza is he's saying, if I had all of creation to give as a present to Christ in response to the gospel, that wouldn't be enough. If I owned America and could make Jesus, King of America, in that moment, that wouldn't be enough. If I had all of the earthly treasures and power and pleasures and experiences and money and fame, and I gave that to Christ, and it was mine, and I could give it away, that wouldn't be enough. He says that this love, the quality of love that Christ displayed in the cross, is so rich that it demands me. It doesn't demand what I have. It demands my life. It demands everything. It's not just the things I own, it's who I am. So the only response worthy of Christ is total surrender of everything. And by everything, I don't mean the things I own alone. I mean who I am, who I am in the foundation of of my being. And because Paul knows of the genuineness of the Philippians' conversion, he calls them to imitate him along. He says in verse 18, Likewise, in the same style, in the same manner, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is what Paul is commanding these Philippians to, to to put up with the plunder of their property, to encounter various trials and persecutions, and to do it not based out of just perseverance of their own making, but because they've been transformed by the love of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that in this season you would give us as a church mighty grace from the Holy Spirit to be able to share with our neighbors and strangers and our friends and co-workers and other people that we meet. We ask you, Lord, that you would be able to, uh, that we would be able to participate with your Spirit, that we would heed these words of Paul, that we would tremble and fear in the moment, not of, of dishonoring you, but to tremble and fear before the amazing reality that you are participating with us when we evangelize, when we share with our neighbor, when we love our brothers and sisters. We pray, God, that you would deliver us, deliver us from timidity and weakness and the fear of man and that you would convince us of the glory of Christ, both in his death and resurrection and his ascension and installation on the throne of the universe. We pray, God, that you would deliver us from low views of who we are in Christ and that you would allow us by your grace to see our calling and that that calling would transform into energy and motivation and love for neighbor. We pray, Lord, that in this season, your son would draw many to himself through 
our efforts. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.